When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called With Open Arms. Normally, we start every episode with friperous facts, but today's a little bit different. Because my guest has had Steve, a Syrian refugee, living with her as part of her family for the past four years. And it was announced soon after we recorded our conversation that people in Britain can offer homes to Ukrainian refugees, allowing those who do not have a family connection to the UK to come in on a visa. The first step, as you may well know by now, is to apply through the government website and hosts will receive £350 a month tax-free for up to 12 months. At the time of recording this, over 122,000 households have already signed up. Yeah. So we might have to do audio if it stays bumpy. Is the cat blocking the booster? Yeah, I think the cat's blocking the booster. That's my guest today, Deborah Francis White. So here's the tricky bit. The government will not be matching British hosts with Ukrainians. But luckily, there are a number of charities who can help with the matching process, and we've put links to several of them in the show notes. Deborah mentions a couple of them during our conversation, in particular Refugees at Home, a charity that specialises in connecting refugees and hosts online, and where the commitment doesn't always have to be long-term, although it does have to be six months plus for the government scheme. But Deborah's own refugee relationship began with the offer of a short stay, which was mutually extended in steps until it became a permanent arrangement. And of course, not everybody is able to offer a home, so we've put other ideas and links in the show notes. Thanks for bearing with all this serious stuff, motherfuckers, and we'd love to hear any of your ideas about things that might help, so do get in touch with me or the podcast. But hey, I'm recording this on my birthday. So with love in our hearts and open arms, let's get this show on the road. Let's Is that better? It. Yeah, let's try. I'm going to do the same. I get your lovely holding Me. picture. Okay, Is that that's probably clearer, isn't it? Deborah Francis White is a stand-up comedian, podcaster and screenwriter. She's perhaps best known for hosting the Guilty Feminist podcast, which is something of a hit with over 95 million downloads to date. Something for me to aspire to. Deborah uses the platform and network to help multiple charities, especially relating to refugees and or human rights. And the podcast has a residency at London's King's Place. You'll have seen Deborah on many TV shows and heard her voice and writing extensively on radio. You may have seen the film Say My Name, which she wrote, and she is a director of improv company The Spontaneity Shop, which she co-founded with Tom Zielinski back in 1996. Deborah and I talked about feminism, Australia, community, activism, belonging, Jehovah's Witnesses, improv, TV shows, comedy, podcasts and difference. But I started by asking her what it's like to be back on the road with the Guilty Feminist live shows. been so amazing I just I was worried people wouldn't come back out because you know it was advertised during Omicron um and it's you know we've only had January and February you know we we cancelled our shows in December we had a huge fundraiser cancelled it and so I was just so scared that people wouldn't come back out and that it would just be 
you know, people would have moved on or something. I don't know. I just felt like nervous that it wasn't going to be what it used to be. And it was such a celebratory night in Brighton. I can't even tell you. People came out, people came out in Nottingham and it was just, they were so really ready to kind of be together again. And it just felt really, truly wonderful. I think um, there's probably as much of a place for guilty feminism now as there has ever been. I think you could arguably say the needs got even more intense. I think so. I agree. And I think I'm just grateful that people still have the uh, the drive, the energy, the excitement. And in a way, they've got more because they've been locked away for a, a couple of years and I keep the, the the first lines of Mr Brightside keep coming back to me I'm coming out of my cage and I'm doing just fine and I that's how I feel oh I love it I think that's the podcast done Deborah thank you very much we've got all we need. <laughs> <laughs> so but is it um I also was wondering this is starting on a bit of a heavy topic for the podcast but I know you do a lot in terms of looking at what you can do to with charities relating to refugees, human rights. I know you've had a Syrian refugee live with you in the past. So what, what in terms of the current uh, Ukraine situation, is there anything specific that, that you got, you know, what's your response to that both personally yeah. and in terms of the podcast? I mean, in the present, Steve's lived with us. Steve's short for Mustafa. Uh, Steve's lived with us for four years, maybe four and a half years now. He's from Syria and has totally changed our life. My husband and me, had him come in to mind our cats and uh i mean we didn't say you have to mind our cats just to be very clear we were going away he was sofa surfing he didn't have his papers yet and how did you I, meet him he came to do a podcast we decided to do a refugee season a podcast so ah. we just thought we'll just get refugees on not to talk about being a refugee but to be a human being you know to be an individual to talk to just so we got on global pillage which is like it's like qi except for all the questions about cultural diversity so it's idioms you know in france they say you've got a cat on your head um which means you're a wolf in sheep's clothing it's it's like when disability activists say you're not disabled yet you don't know what's going to happen to you but also as people age everybody loses mobility and you know it's you will feel you will find times in your life when you'll be injured or you will not have the same access anything can happen to you and things do happen to you as you age and it's the same as being a refugee like we're now we've now got a war going on in europe how quickly could things escalate where we'd be in dinghies off the coast of dover absolutely how quickly with climate change could that happen so if we're not refugees in our lifetime i think we'll be very lucky did you read um, and did or has Steve read or you the Beekeeper of Aleppo? Um, yes. Which is, yeah, it's just the. I, I would urge anyone. We'll put a link to it. Um, but I would urge anyone who has not fully inhabited the shoes of what it might be to be a refugee and what it might be for any one of us. I found that just a breathtaking book to read, and it was. And as you know, it was written by somebody who'd had experience in um, volunteering in Athens at refugee centres so had had kind of close-up contact with with the kind of stories that then get depicted in the novel so even though it's a work of fiction it's against a backdrop that's pretty sobering so yeah I'll put a link to that but it's an incredible book. I'm reading uh, Sweet Francaise at the moment. I haven't is, read that. Yes, oh it's I know incredible it is. yeah but it was it was written if any of your listeners don't know it was written during the Second World War by a Jewish Russian woman who had come to France, fled to France as a refugee, as a teenager, then become a famous novelist in France. Then when um, the Nazis occupied Paris had fled to rural France. And it's all about people leaving Paris. So it's all these different families and individuals and people leaving Paris and becoming refugees within France. So the Parisians just going into the country and it's always the rich people who are like horrified to discover their money won't buy anything because there are no rooms to be had in hotels. There is no food left. There's nothing for them. And they're like, but I've got money you don't understand. And I'm used to a certain lifestyle. And suddenly when you can't buy anything with your money or your accounts gets frozen or it's you don't have a passport, you know, with Brexit, we've cut ourselves off from all these countries that would have been obliged to have us. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a it's an an extraordinary thing to read this book it, it that was written at the time and see so many parallels to now but also really getting in the heads of all these different people when i heard somebody recently 
on, it was like a Western journalist, but I think it was on Al Jazeera. And I saw a clip of him saying, a lot of these people look middle class and they've got good, they've got nice coats and they're driving really nice cars and things like that. And I'm like, Who, what do you think happens mm. though? Mm. Like in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan, in these other places, do you think the bombs fall around the middle class people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they don't fall on their houses and on their cars and on their nice coats? That war doesn't discriminate with class, but he was genuinely shocked. And I'm like, you're an intelligent journalist. How do you not know that refugees are from all classes? And that is the thing that people need to remember. If you take any random thousand people from London, where the city where I live, for example, and you put them in boats off the coast of Dover, that's who refugees are. Mm -hmm. It's the CEO of the bank in Canary Wharf. It's the person cleaning the bank. It's the middle manager who's thinking about leaving and is actually secretly writing a novel. And they're... You know, young woman who works at the reception desk who's in massively in love with the person she's sitting next to and doesn't know how to say it. It's the it's the young person sitting at the front of the bank saying, spare any change, she's sleeping rough. It's everybody. So in terms of you and Steve, so you were not looking, thinking, well, we'll do something, we want to help do something um, for, for somebody within the refugee community. It was something that came up through kind of house-sitting, cat-sitting thing and happened to be someone who was a Syrian refugee? Um. Well, I would recommend Refugees at Home mm -hmm. because they are the absolute best at placing the right refugee with the right home and the, getting that connection right. I would also recommend, so you just Google them, get in touch with them, say you're open to it. I mean, this does come down to how many people our government allow in. I saw mm -hmm. somebody today saying, I live in a council flat and I told uh, the the council i'm happy to have anyone who from ukraine who comes in and needing a bed and they said no because then you're subletting a room and it would affect your tenancy Gosh. and i'm like we've got to have to shift this guys yeah. because you know we've now got millions and millions of people millions and millions of people around the world displaced and if people are willing to open their homes i mean really the governments should be doing this it shouldn't be down to individuals but also short term measures in a crisis, I like the community helping each other, actually. I think it's great. You know, I've been watching, because I'm from Queensland and Australia originally, and some of my family live over the border in New South Wales, and I've been watching this massive cleanup going on after the floods, their historic mm -hmm. floods. And Australia's always had extreme weather since well, I can remember. But this is really on another level because of cl the climate crisis. And the mud, just houses ruined, friends of mine, houses ruined, shops ruined, just businesses destroyed. And they have what they call the mud army, which is just citizens getting in vans and buses, going to these affected areas and helping the cleanup and helping with, you know, getting people new furniture and restoring. And you know, some people have been saying, well, the government should be doing it or the government should be doing more. And absolutely, of course, the government should be doing more. But I also love human beings just stepping up and helping each other i find it I, I i want to live in a society where we do look out for each other as well there's something very human and warm about that i don't really want that to go away i would love if the government would work with private citizens rather than just going oh you're doing it then i won't bother but i i love that the world we've lived in has got so small because of the pandemic we've all not confronted difference in a kind of serendipitous way anymore we've been able to slightly curate who's around us in a world that was shut down and one of the things I think that's also really worth people realizing is if we're looking at mental health mental well-being and what keeps us as humans functioning you talk about community it isn't just an altruistic act to reach out to people who need our help and to make those kind of random connections or curated random connections but it actually is what makes us feel human and what helps us keep the train on the track so by us engaging with people in a way that builds community and belonging that's at the absolute heart of what we need to survive let alone thrive so there's also a reason to do it even if people are thinking oh it's just not for me that to do those things and to actually be part of a sense of a collective experience is what's going to keep us somehow sane in these incredibly challenging times so there are many many reasons Oh, to yeah. do it aside from the kind of moral compass oh yeah purpose connection it's all we've got in terms of belonging and and 
community. I'm sort of struck by, we will obviously talk about the Guilty Feminist and the community and the platform you've built that where there was such a gap until it came along. And, and we'll talk about that. But in terms of your own upbringing, so growing up, for anyone who doesn't know, you mentioned that you grew up in Queensland, but you were, so you were adopted when you were a tiny baby. Yep. And then ended up living in a kind of Jehovah's Witness community. So in two quite clear ways, you were plopped into the world without instant belonging. That's not saying your your adopted par- parents didn't make you feel as if you belonged. So you you came at two different things as the kind of outsider. And and does that have a does that first of all ring true when I say that that there might be a kind of outsider insider element to your psyche? Yeah, I mean, my parents are my parents. Like I I didn't know any different, and and you know I got on so well with my parents. So that's not. My parents are my family. I, I would never think of them as my adopted family at all. That is my family mm-hmm. um, and have been amazing parents. But yeah, we did, um, my family did join the Jehovah's Witnesses, which are a high control group uh, slash cult when I was a teenager. And that affected me very badly. So your parents became Jehovah's Witnesses when you were 14. And that is, I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but certainly in terms of the definition of a patriarchal set up I would imagine that's absolutely the backbone of Jehovah's Witnesses right that there's not a huge kind of um equality for for women thing going on in that oh, particular no, it's terrible. area yeah I was in I did a show my first tour show back in Brighton which was amazing uh it was a big guilty feminist show it was just phenomenal and uh I ended up chatting to a man in the front row and he turned out to be a former Jehovah's Witness elder and there's often a lot of former Jehovah's Witnesses in my audience because it, there's not that many former Jehovah's Witness entertainers for them to come out and see or comedians. Um, I had a lot of fun with the fact that the the status was now reversed because normally men would stand on the stage or the platform, they would call it, uh, in the Kingdom Hall with the Jehovah's Witnesses and women would sit in the audience and we'd, we wouldn't be allowed to speak from the platform. So I had a lot of fun with that on stage. Yeah, it's a very, it's, it's, there's not, a, there's not a, uh, there's not a decision in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses that have been made by a woman. Even when the Kingdom Hall is cleaned, it's all done by men. Every really? single thing. Yeah, we don't have no power at all. And is we- there, it's a kind of, st- the structure of that then is, there's something quite, um, I don't know if saying it's kind of structurally violent is too extreme to say, but there's something quite extreme about being brought oh, no, up in that. no, it is structurally that's- violent. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely structurally violent. Yeah, it's, and it's and the punishment women, for women breaking- aren't leave, Women aren't believed, yeah. children aren't believed. There is shunning. That's what I was going to say, the shunning. So that really struck me when we're talking about belonging and bringing people in and community and how precarious one can feel in terms of one's identity when you're not in a safe place where you're allowed to belong and have some sense of self. So shunning being a punishment for breaking the rules and you as a teenager seeing that that is the consequence of not going along with what you're told, that must have quite a profound effect on you thinking about how much you would dare to speak out or strike out. It, it, yeah. Because that's one hell of a punishment, shunning. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly incentivizing in the wrong way. But do you know what I think now is every single thing that I went through is the substance of my work now, the purpose, the purpose of my work. And it's given me so much empathy for people who are marginalized, people who don't have a voice, people who have, have a strong voice, but no one will hear it. And so I think it's foolish to regret the worst things that have happened. No, let's edit that out. I think it's for me, it's, it's foolish to regret the worst things that have happened to me because they have shaped me. They've given me voice. They've given me purpose. They've given me drive. They've given me the knowledge that I'm going to die. Uh, it's a religion that believes Armageddon will come and everyone will live on, you know, all the Jehovah's will live forever on earth. It's given me this knowledge that I know I'm mortal. I've got one life. Let's live it. And so I do a lot of things and I have a, I have a wonderful big round life. And I think that's partly because I got off the conveyor belt of just, yeah, school. Yeah. Uni. Yeah. Get married. Yeah. Have kids. Yeah. Get, have, have, have a career. Yeah. Take a career break. So have, I, d- I haven't done any of that. I've had a very off piece life. And for that, I am truly thankful. And I've heard you talk about the fact that you've got your trauma and you've got your privilege. And I think that's really clear in, in how you, in your voice, in how you've become who you've become and the platform you've given to other people and the kind of breadth and depth of your willingness to see difference and give a platform to voices that perhaps aren't always heard or and people who aren't always seen. But it's interesting to think how you got out of that 
world so how you didn't kind of drink the kool-aid and just stick with what you knew because we are still massively molded by our upbringings at that crucial age in our lives I know some people rebel and some people are defined by what's around them but I was really interested when I when I kind of researched a bit more into your story and and and, you know you ended up going to Oxford and and sort of striking out and the, the improv was your was sort of one one of your ways both out of that community and into getting through the Oxford interview is is that right oh yeah um I used to sneak out to do comedy improvisation when I was a Jehovah's Witness you're not allowed to do anything like that because it's worldly but I did and I used to read this book called Impro by Keith Johnston which had all these amazing mental exercises to free yourself mentally and uh so that was my unofficial bible when I was a Jehovah's Witness and it kept me sane and creative and and I used to sneak off to these improv classes so the second I left the Jehovah's Witnesses I did loads of improv workshops and improvisation is like the opposite of a cult because a cult tells you to to think in a very convergent way these are the only things you can think and say improv says you can think and say anything be in the moment trust yourself trust what's obvious to you and so when I went up for my Oxford interview I was just like I had nothing to lose. And I remember the guy before me who went in um, knew everything. For a, for a man, young man that age, he, he knew so much about literature and much, much more qualified than me to get in, honestly, as we were both going up for English. But he was paralyzed with fear, you know, and he said that the he had misinterpreted a poem in the interview, which that in itself is not going to disqualify you. It's how you respond to that. They've got to tutor you. Are you going to be fun? Are you going to be fun to discuss things with? But the interviewer in that like typical high-handed Oxford way said, uh, can you think of any, any words starting with F right now? And he just didn't know what to say. And he said, come on, give me an unusual word starting with F. And, um, he said, or, he said, after ages, I came up with fribble, which is a word that D.H. Lawrence invented. And then he said, can you think of any other words starting with F? And he was clearly trying to get him to say fuck. And he just said no. And at one point in the interview, they the same thing was thrown to me, but it wasn't so loaded. I think it was the letter B. And so I just went, because I did improv, bumblebee, beautiful, bootylicious, uh, bugger me you know I just went for it and just said any b word that came into my mind but actually the trick I knew is if you make the b sound with your mouth your brain knows how to finish that so I can do it with like the alphabet as well if I if I just if I try and think of a word starting with a I'll probably censor loads out as not interesting enough but if I make the uh sound my my brain will give me apple austin attack uh, art, arty farty, Arthur. Do you see? I'm just making the A sound, and it's and the idea of no wrong of following following the funny, isn't it? No wrong answers, just going with whatever's coming, and having the confidence to just just follow it and keep going. It's, it's even it's even less than that. It's making a sound and being curious as to see what your brain will fill that sound with. So letting your unconscious to, follow the conscious, as opposed to thinking something up mm-hmm. and then deciding whether it's good enough. And so I can go apple, banana, child, dog, elephant, fruit. You sound like Trump but, doing an intelligence test. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, there's a part of me that goes apple, banana, they're both fruit. And then by F, I say fruit. Is that good enough? Are people going to think I'm repeating myself? Who cares? Mm-hmm. It's just it's just opening your mouth and being curious. And your brain does link things. So that's a great thing because your brain is looking to cluster and link and find patterns and story. All of these things are wonderful. So that's what I knew. And I think that antidote to the cult gave me so much. Namaste, motherfuckers. And do you think, um, first of all, by the way, why isn't there a Book of Mormon equivalent about Jehovah's Witnesses and why haven't you written it? Well, I'm happy to say, Callie, that there is a brilliant non-binary writer-performer called Brooke Tate, who's doing a show called Birthmarked at the Bristol Old Vic. And he's written, and they've written songs over the last six years. Uh, Brooke's going to be telling the story of a young queer Jehovah's Witness as they come to terms with their sexuality. I've seen a bit of it on tape, and I've seen a bit of it on video, and it's absolutely remarkable, and they're absolutely remarkable. Also, can I recommend Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez, a young black gay man who left the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's they he was he was going to write it as a memoir. 
but he ended up writing it instead as a novel so it's not it's based on his life and it's about a young black gay Jehovah's Witness coming to London having no money and, and spending time working as a sex worker and it's it's really genius and so both of those uh, pieces of art are really worth looking at I am working on a TV show uh, that I'm very excited about about the Jehovah's Witnesses but it's it's got a twist to it which I can't tell you because it's and a secret and is this scripted is it a scripted project yes scripted project uh, that I'm uh, setting up in America as we speak. People obviously know of you as a comedian, they know of you as somebody who has a very clear voice as an activist, but in terms of your writing credentials and, you know, you won the Writers uh, Guild for Best Radio Comedy uh, what, five, six years ago now for Deborah yep. Franta's White Rolls the Dice. There are so many things that you do and I also know that were frustrating for you when you were coming out of Oxford and you had all the capacity to be writing amazing stuff, wanting to say stuff, needing a platform to get your stuff out to audiences and the frustration of that not happening and that not really being a meritocracy, right? Because there's so many missed opportunities in terms of what we would all like to see, regardless of the demographic of the person putting it on screens. But that's still a very uneven playing field, right? And there's still an attitude to risk that seems to be sometimes overly curated in terms of, well, let's give a platform to this person or this thing because we sort of need to, rather than actually genuinely tackling the fact we have unconscious bias and looking at, well, where are the ideas that people need to see and hear? And do you think, I mean, first of all, you know, how, how much was that a part of you starting up Guilty Feminist? Oh, everything. There is no risk. There is no risk. There's no more risk making Rose Matafeo's star, star, Starstruck then there is making um, a straight white guy's sitcom. There's no more, and and we see that because it's a huge hit. It's not a risk. It's not a risk at all. It's a it's a it's it's a bias that stops Britain making excellent work. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's certainly a lot better than it was when I came out of Oxford. It was sh truly shocking. I was it was the year two thousand, and I nearly had several shows greenlit. And at the last minute, someone at the top would always run. I mean, honestly. Uh, they, we were told these were some of the best scripts I wrote with a writing partner called Philip Waller. We were told this is the best script we've read in years, constantly. And then you see things getting greenlit and have to sit watching them thinking, I can see the script isn't as strong oh. as what we'd done, which is the most galling bit, right? Male counterparts of mine had, had show after show after show that didn't work. And they were given yet another opportunity before we were given our first one. So there but wouldn't I, have been an opportunity at that point for you to do the, the equivalent of Peep Show, you know, for you to come up with a script that would then become Peep Show. That wasn't really an no. option right then, right? There's a no. reason, not that I, I think Peep Show is incredible, not that that wasn't incredible, but that was very much what we were seeing at the time and what had a chance of being commissioned back then, right? There was no opportunity at all. But yay, there is now, to be positive, there is now. And I had a film made with American money. It was made, it was set... Um, shot in Wales but it was made with American money and American producers and they said they were going to make it they made it it's made uh, it's an independent film it's called Say My Name you can find it on iTunes or Amazon we'll put Prime. links to all of this yeah uh, yeah yeah and it's a, and it's it was such a great experience and that was really lovely that and has that helped you get this US this TV projects in the US away do you think that that's now happened and that there's yeah, more and more concrete evidence yeah having having credits always helps and um so yeah I'm really excited I've got a couple of projects that are almost up and away or away in America now. So I'm really excited. It's a really great time. I guess user-generated content in the same way that you are now going to be taking some brilliant TV project to the States. I know when I was working for Comedy Central in the States, it was a very different way of commissioning, not least because they had a lot more money than the UK Comedy Central. But a lot of the big shows, if you look at something like Broad City, that would never have been commissioned had it not started in short form as web content and had Amy Poehler then not found Abby and Alana and backed them and championed them. That would never have got in as a them going in, approaching Comedy Central for a commission. But because it cut its teeth in a user-generated way and developed its following, and uh, it, they then were given a lot of free reign in how that show emerged. And you can see it in terms of the content. You know, they were given kind of, it wasn't in the hands of the, the writer's room, it was in their hands. And they kind of got got to that point through the fact that that channel was willing to let some of their big shows come out of that form and I think in some ways that is if you
you look at where content and voices are coming from, including from a platform like The Guilty Feminist, the hope is that that is given the opportunity to translate into mass market. The bit that still seems to be missing a bit in this country is that doesn't always happen. So the platform's happening, the profile and recognition are happening, but then it translates into the bigger ticket mainstream media not on our shores, which seems like a massive hemorrhaging yeah. of, of key talent. I mean, maybe they're seeing that now and it will change. You know, we can we can always be optimistic. Um, and who knows? Who knows what the future might hold? Uh, I think I've really done my best to build a platform and develop talent and develop my own talent. And, uh, and I, I just love the fact now that the workers control the means of production in the arts. We can, we have, we do, we, we say, listen, if you don't think this is going to be a hit, I can put it out there and see if people want it. Mm -hmm. And with the guilty feminists, sometimes people say, why is it so successful? And I say, because women are thirsty. And just tell people about the statistics. So how many downloads have you had since it started, Deborah? 95 million. Yeah, so I'd say that's kind of people voting with their feet and their ears as to what they want to hear. And it does show that not just female audiences, audiences are thirsty for what you're doing. And is it in terms of of guilty feminists, in terms of audiences, you you talked at the beginning of this, and in a minute I want to ask you the, the three questions I ask everybody. But we started by talking about the fact you're back on tour, the kind of you, your voice lights up when you talk about it. The rooms no doubt light up when, when you and your colleagues kind of emerge on stage. But what is your favourite thing about guilty feminist audiences, whether live or people who follow the podcast? Oh, I just love the energy of it. Like, I think a big part of the success of the show is that we've always been a live show. So from day one, we had an audience. And I think two things. One is that comedians are better in front of an audience. Sometimes it can get a bit self-indulgent when you're just making each other laugh. Um, I think it's wonderful when the audience tells you, yes, you're on the right track, keep going down here. Mm -hmm. Uh, What Sarah Pascoe calls the punctuation of the laugh. Yes. Um, But the other thing is, is the, the listener at home or on their commute or on their run, what they hear is an army of people cheering, getting angry, being concerned, finding the same things funny. And they feel like they're not alone because it's not just me and a comedian and an activist or something. It's, it's, it's the whole army of women and people of minority genders in the audience who are going, yes, we feel this too. And cisgendered men, honestly, Uh, uh, we always have, we always have guys in the audience who are there to, support or feel the same or feel that the the system isn't working for them either um and i genuinely do feel that's a big part of it and i hated the zoom era because we didn't have that and mm. i wasn't even in the room with the other comedians mm. it was just so tricky it was the because... opposite of what you'd set up wasn't it really if you're looking at exactly. that sense of community and authenticity and connection exactly and the thing is if if i had created a zoom podcast that would be one thing or a studio podcast, but we created a live experience. And I'm just so grateful to the audience that they've come back out. I'm just so grateful. I can't even tell you. I think they'll Uh, be quite grateful you've come back out as well, to be fair. I'd say that's a reciprocal bit of gratitude. Is this um, one of the things, hearing you talk, Deborah, and you and I don't know each other well, we've met a couple of times, and I know we have quite quite a lot of similarities in terms of some of our kind of backgrounds and some of the things we're involved in. But you seem, if if I look at you on paper and I hear you speak so eloquently and I see all the things you achieve and the voice you are and the how people in the world see you as a kind of role model and someone with these kind of you know big shoes to fill do you is is there kind of self-doubt how do you keep the keep this kind of productivity and this momentum in the face of what are also for all of us some massive setbacks and challenges and frustrations is what we see is is that is that what what there is you know is there is there kind of vulnerability self-doubt like how, how do you how do the two kind of coincide because you do seem so so impressive and is that is that does that run right through you like a stick of rock honestly it's the audience when i when when i finished the brighton show i was like i need to do absolutely every single thing that i can do to keep to build this right because because this community deserves this and i just feel a part of it i don't feel like i'm leading anything i just feel at the centre of something truly wonderful. And it's, it's just a privilege and a joy to platform so many brilliant women. 
So it's the opposite of ego. It's really serving that community on and off stage. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm still a comedian, so I definitely still have an ego. <laughs> We've all <laughs> got a smidgen of narcissism like a and ego. <laughs> but I love it. I love someone. Oh, Jess Robinson took a picture of me watching Grace Petrie and I was sitting in the wings and I was wearing like a purple satin cape made by a brilliant designer called Despicable Daisy in Ireland. And I was sitting in a cape in the wings on the floor watching Grace Petrie and she posted it saying find someone who looks at you the way Deborah looks at Grace when she's on stage and honestly the greatest moments and memories for me mm. I love being on stage I love the interaction with the audience I love it more than anything but watching I was still on the stage with Cal Wilson at the Wellington Arena because we stay on the stage often when the musician comes on mm -hmm. and in that sort of slightly Graham Norton way um, I'm describing the tour show as um, imagine Michael, if you like Michael McIntyre's Roadshow, uh, or not if you like, I'm describing the tour show this way. Uh, imagine Michael McIntyre's Roadshow plus Graham Norton plus Jules Holland. But imagine all those three men were women and imagine they invited <laughs> women to be on. And that's 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 the show. Um, and I just sitting on the stage watching Grace Petrie sing Black Tie tonight. She's a, if you don't know Grace Petrie, she's incredible. She's a young lesbian protest singer very funny very very clever in the, the lyrics of her songs her latest album which is called connectivity which she wrote in the pandemic is just stunning and her most famous song is black tie tonight and she sang it for the first time on the guilty feminist ever um and it just took off and became a hit and it's about it's a it's it's in the lyrics are it's a postcard to my year 11 self that everything's going to be all right because she was a young butch lesbian at school when everyone at the school formals dressing up in these you know frilly dresses and uh, the lyrics were uh, the lyrics are you'll be in black tie tonight uh, and it's just it's like there she is now in her you know her dinner jacket and it's just it's just the most beautiful song and she was singing it in wellington in new zealand people kept stopping us on the street in wellington because they love the guilty feminists they love grace and they all they were all singing the lyrics and we had never been to Wellington before. You know, I've never been to Wellington, New Zealand in my life, neither did Grace. And the whole arena is singing this song and they know the lyrics. And I was like, wow, this is powerful. This is something. And just watching her and being so proud of her, it sounds, I shouldn't, you know, it always sounds a bit patronizing to say you're proud of someone, but I really felt it. I felt pride in her, her boldness her self-ownership her ability to communicate and the fact that together we'd found a route to New Zealand where people had already learnt the lyrics of her songs before we'd arrived and that's a collaborative thing and, I, and it just watching them love her and watching her love being there it just I don't know something about it, it makes me cry and I just feel like crying talking about it it's back you know and I was sitting there Sunday sitting in the wings and I watch every act I don't sit in the green room chatting I want to watch every act I want to see what the audience is seeing oh it was just so glorious and I cried at both curtain calls just being back in that room and feeling like it hadn't gone away and I think that was a genuine fear for me and we're back you know it's all and right and it doesn't sound patronizing at all and i think anybody who hasn't i think most people listening to this will be fans and know you and know the guilty feminists but anyone who hadn't quite understood what it was what it means to you and what it means to your audiences i think you've just embodied that pretty well and you may be the first person deborah who has um unwittingly answered one of the three questions just before i ask it because one of my first of the three questions is what you would pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment Oh, I know what that is. Um, I knew that I'd always, I'd always been a feminist. I was a feminist when I was a Jehovah's Witness, which was a problem because you can't be. Um, I, I, when this, when this new revival of feminism came about in the mid uh, teens, the mid twenty tens, there was lots of exciting things happening. You know, there was Bridget Christie's. Uh, a big for her. There was Chimamanda, we should all be feminists. Malala had done the most brave and powerful thing and we were listening to her speak. You know, Catelyn Morin's uh, How to Be a Woman. There was just so much going on and I was like, I want to be part of this because this is a revival. But I don't know that I'm good enough. Like, I'm a feminist, but, you know, someone was talking about this four-hour documentary about the suffragettes, but I just watched four hours of Say Yes to the Dress, you know, and I was like, oh my God, am I good enough? And I said to Bridget Christie, uh, 
you know, I just don't know. Da, da, da. She said, Deborah, you will never find your audience until you say the thing you're too scared to say. She said, that's what I did. She said, I was doing all this comedy, trying to please the industry. And she said, and I just thought, I'm going to scare my last few fans away by talking about feminism because that's what I really feel angry about. At least, and then I'll just go retire and I'll let my husband support me, ironically. And I said... I said, well, that's all right for you. She said, and that's, she said, and that's when I found my audience. When I said what I really felt, suddenly I had this huge audience. And I said, well, that's all right for you, Bridget. You're strident. You know what? You're angry. You're strident. You, you're very funny about it, hilarious about it. But you know exactly what you think. And you're not indecisive. You're not uncertain. And I thought, what I want to say is I'm a feminist. But one time I went on a women's rights march, popped into a department store to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. When I came out, the march was gone. <laughs> And I'm like, they're just going to kick me out of the feminist club. No one wants to hear this. Anyway, I had these words ringing in my ears for ages, which is say the thing you're frightened to say. That's when you'll find your true audience. I thought, fuck it. I've got nothing to lose. Um, and I had just done my own Radio 4 show with my name in the title, Deborah Francis White Rolls the Dice. Um, I'd won the Writers Guild Award. And I still had agents saying, and I've got emails. I've got emails in writing agents saying we're not taking on any one of the female persuasion that might sound literally sexist, those but words it's not. yeah yeah that wow. might sound sexist but it's not it's not me that's sexist it's the industry that's sexist um another email saying we're a bit saturated girl wise at the moment and i was like well look i've done everything i can do i've literally got without an agent my own my agent had dropped me because he said he couldn't get women on television he dropped me on the basis of being a woman um, and who is no this industry? If the agents and the acts who are female are not this industry, then who is the industry? Well, that's Surely what I said. That's us. I actually yeah. said that. I actually yeah. said, we are the industry. You're mm. a woman. I'm a woman. You know, um, the one that dropped me wasn't a woman, actually. The one that dropped me was a man. But these, the other ones writing to me were women saying, it's not us. It's the industry. And I'm mm. like, but we are the industry. So I just thought, look, I've got nothing to lose. Even if a hundred people love this podcast and listen to it every week, that's a hundred people I'm speaking to. If it's 2000, that's you got an audience of 2000 every week. You you know, in a, in a theater, you'd think, well, this is fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's the Palladium sold out. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, even if we get 2000 regular listeners, that's fine. And so I said it, I admitted it. I'm a feminist, but I, <laughs> uh, I sometimes fantasize about being sexually dominated by famous fictitious misogynist Don Draper and truly believe that if I met him I could make him whole and heal his pain and when <laughs> I said that the audience just roared with laughter and you know what overnight that podcast became and, and usually overnight's never overnight is it? it's not really overnight it really was it was mm. overnight women were like oh my god thank god you've said this I want to be a feminist too and I, I do care about quality and I do feel these things and I wish I would have could speak up more and I I feel angry at the injustice but I'm not this perfect one I also have these other insecurities these hypocrisies and so that's what the show is about so we start off with those confessions but then we can go anywhere and I what I feel is if it doesn't matter, even if, if it's funny, if we all laugh about it, if it doesn't matter, let's laugh about it. Let's exfoliate it. Don't don't carry guilt because that becomes shame. And shame is luggage. You have to carry it around. But if it is something we need to work on, if you really are not advocating for yourself and other women, if you're doing something that is getting in the way and disrupting your feminism, let's look at it. Let's put it on the table. Let's work it out. Let's build muscle. Let's get better and get past it. It's but funny, isn't it? You say way, your dirty secret is what everyone wanted to say. And I love the fact it was guilty feminist, not bad feminist, because I used to think I was a bad feminist. I was like, I'm a bad feminist because I do these things and I feel these things and it doesn't all quite add up. And guilty feminist, I think, was also more mischievous. It kind of summed it up and gave people permission to explore it. It opened a door instead of saying this is a judgment. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and it's and the guilty bit's fun. It's a it's playful. It's yeah, fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in keeping with your keeping the doors open and following the funny kind of improv routes, it does that. You can't really talk about guilty feminism without that being that glint in the eye and wanting to look further into it without shame and without fear. And um, and that's what a brilliant namaste motherfucking moment. Thank you for sharing that. Although I think this episode's peppered with them. To be honest, we've got an embarrassment of riches. Um, but what is your given? You are a comedian. Uh, what is your favourite joke? Um, okay, there's a there's, this is just a one-liner I absolutely love, written by a comedian called Christian Talbot, um, and it's it's just this: twenty-five years on, rhythm is a choreographer. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Who is the person? Yeah, it's really good. Who's the person who wrote that? I don't think I know Christian Talbot. He's a he's a Northern Irish comedian, or he's actually Irish. Moved to Northern Ireland when he was at uni, I think. But he's yeah, he's an Irish comedian. Uh, Twenty five years old, rhythm. He's a choreographer. It's just a great joke. It is a great joke. It's really hard. I don't know about you, but I can't write one liners. Anyone who can, I'm in awe. I'm like, how can you do something as perfect in so few words? I'm all about long stories. Yeah, is me too. there um and if there was one bit of life advice, Deborah, you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Right now, I feel very strongly that we have got to be less outcome focused. Um if we are focused on the outcome and we have these success failure metrics all the time, I honestly think we are going to get so discouraged, we're not going to be able to go on. I thought there were going to be four horsemen of the apocalypse. Turns out there's like at least 17 circling the whole time. I'm like, what are these breeding? I'm like, what is going on? So this is what I have been, this is how I've recalibrated lately. Life is lived in moments. That's all we've got. We, we can't live in the past. A bunch of things happen. We make meaning out of them. We carry those stories with us. We guess what will happen in the future, but we can't live there because it's always now. So here's the thing. Um, if all we've got is the moment, what can we do to make the moment better? I'm an Amnesty ambassador and I'm an Amnesty, I'm an Amnesty International ambassador. And I heard this story about this political prisoner who'd been in jail for 20 years and she said, just knowing people were writing letters, just knowing people writing letters to the government and could see what was going on because of amnesty and writing letters to her made her life completely different because every day she would get out and think there's meaning here. I'm pointing to this horrors of this police state. I there, There's an army. They're trying to get me out. I'm not forgotten in this hellhole. She could feel a defiance. She could feel a fight. She could feel a life. At the end of that 20 years, she got out and said, that's what kept me going. That's why I didn't lose my mind. But my question is, what if there's a political prisoner and we don't get them out? Have we failed? And I would suggest we haven't. I'd suggest we failed to get them out. That was the outcome we wanted. But we succeeded in making every moment of that political prisoner's life meaningful, hopeful, defiant, engaged. So we succeeded. We succeeded in changing the moment. And right now, I can't stop Putin doing this illegal invasion and hurting people and killing people. I can't stop that. So if I if I can only if I if all I'm focused on is the outcome I'm I most want, I'll feel discouraged and like there's no point doing anything. But if I think, how can I make the moment of a Ukrainian person's life better? How can I make a, a Ukrainian refugee who's lost everything feel like there is hope, there is humanity, there is kindness, there is possibility, I can start again, then I've succeeded in, in changing a moment. And that, that could keep that person, just one act of kindness can keep that person going for months. Having someone in your house, you don't have to have them, you know, Steve's totally our family now. You don't have to have someone live with you four and a half years. You could have someone for a long weekend and just go, like, while you're here, you know, we're going away this weekend, the fridge is yours, use the internet, have a nice hot bath. I've left some bath salts there for you. And when we come back, we'll need the place back. But we just wanted you to have a nice weekend. That will mean so much. That like, oh, There is kindness in the world. I can go on. You know, have someone stay for three weeks. And if you are thinking about taking your refugee in, please, can I just recommend you don't say you can live here forever. See how it goes. See how the chemistry goes. Mm -hmm. Invite them for three weeks. Invite them for six weeks because it might not work out on either side. And then you've done a lovely thing. And then you say, oh, yes, the six weeks come to an end and we need the room back, but it's been wonderful. Um, I wouldn't recommend saying you can stay forever because sometimes it doesn't work out and then it feels like you've rejected someone. So what I'd recommend is say, we said to Steve, stay for three weeks. Then we said, would you like to stay for three months? Then we said, would you like to stay another three months? And within that time, uh, we went to see the jungle, the play together. And it really affected me seeing how his refugee camp home that he had built with other refugees had been bulldozed to the ground by the French government. And that night I said to Steve, as long as Tom and I have a home, you have a home, you'll never lose your home again. And in the morning I said to Tom, by the way, Steve lives here now forever. We have a new family member. And Tom said, that's so you. But of course I knew at that point, I knew that Tom felt about Steve the way that I did. So 
I would recommend you do that. But what mm. I would say is, what if you did just invite someone in for a cup of tea and you did Wordle together? What if you just, you know, took the, went for a walk with someone? What if you had an old bike in the garage and you went, does anyone want this bike? I asked for a sewing machine the other day for a refugee who wants to start his own design business. I got 20, 20 sewing machines in an afternoon were offered to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what are the other ones? They're just sitting in cupboards collecting dust. Well, what if somebody started a program where not just refugees, but there's lots of people in this country that would love a sewing machine. It would be so much more sustainable if more of us would make clothes. There's lots of people who would have who would start business, little little cottage industry businesses if they had or just make something for their kids or teach their kids to sew. What are all half the people who've got a sewing machine, the other half need one. What if we just started thinking like that? What if we started thinking about the moment rather than the outcome? Honestly, we could all die of climate change. So I really, really want us to think about the outcome on that one. However, every moment we make more hopeful between now and then to show young people we care, we're with you, solidarity is worthwhile in itself and makes it more likely that the people fighting the hardest can keep going. That was Deborah Francis White. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do. And this week, I'm going to start reading Sweet Francaise, the book that Deborah mentioned near the start of our conversation by Irene Nemirovsky, I don't suppose I'm saying that right, who's a French writer of Ukrainian Jewish origin. So that is it for this week's episode. And I promise Namaste Motherfuckers hasn't suddenly become all serious and earnest, but there is some pretty serious shit going on in the world right now. So I figure you won't mind just this once. So please do, as always, remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. And we will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I'll be talking to celebrity chef Jack Stein. I think I'm going to take this job in the city because it was all kind of, you know, there's money. And, and I guess I was in the period of my life where I just felt that maybe that was the way to go. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.